I'd like to talk about renunciation, commitment and devotion. The life of the great Tibetan Lama Geshe Rapten. Throughout the last number of years in my talks, I've always been very considerate and very careful not to say anything that could be a little over the edge and turn people off by being maybe too Buddhist or too outspoken in one way or the other or too strong in mostly in talking about renunciation and a total 100% commitment to Dharma in one's life. And I think it comes and came from not wanting to offend, not wanting to discourage people who live a family life and or are engaged in the world in various very positive ways. And I have seen people being really offended, turned off by the suggestion of strong renunciation or doing just that in one's life. Maybe feeling guilty or inadequate or something, feeling devalued perhaps in what they're doing. So that's not the point if I'm going to speak about this tonight, okay? Maybe even more, it's also been because of myself not being such a great example of renunciation and total aspiration to full enlightenment in this lifetime. So maybe that's another reason I've been reluctant to talk that way too. And yet I feel that it is extremely important for us to hear about, to look at, and to be exposed to the totality of devotion to Dharma, to inner freedom, and to full enlightenment for the benefit of all beings. And what that can mean, a possibility. And it doesn't need to be turning off or discouraging us, but rather it can give us great inspiration. It's done a lot in Asia, and that's how people take it there. They don't immediately measure themselves up against those great beings, but rather get inspiration and get enthusiastic about it. So, approaching this a little bit differently, I'd like to talk about my Tibetan teacher, Geshe Rapten. He was probably the biggest influence in my life in terms of Dharma and its practice. There's been other strong influences, but I think he's been maybe the strongest one. And I'd like to talk about his life and also to a small extent about his teaching. But here I'll mostly talk about the teaching that came through his way of life, through his example and to how he had been living his life. 
And most of the quotes in this talk are from the book The Life and Teachings of Geshe Rapton, edited by Alan Wallace. Geshe Rapton was born in 1920 in Tehor, in the province of Kham in eastern Tibet. And he had quite a happy childhood as a farm boy. And he says of that time, we lived by farming, and apart from cultivating our fields and caring for our domestic animals, we took little interest in anything besides guns, horses, and swords. Later, he says, I took great pleasure in this and became fairly adept in riding and in shooting. For instance, I could touch both my forearm to the ground while riding at full gallop. Then I used to stick tiny yellow flowers in cow droppings and shoot at them from such a distance that I could barely see them, and I seldom missed my mark. But even though I like to handle weapons, I never wish to harm anyone with them. When he and his family would visit the monasteries in the area, the boy was always filled with great admiration for the monks and for all the things they were doing. And at about age 19, after his father had refused to let him leave home, I think the other brothers had already left or something, he refused to let him go ordain and uh, live at the monastery, he finally decided to escape. And he undertook the long, arduous journey to central Tibet. It's a journey that took him about three months on horse and on foot. And there he entered the famous Sera monastery near Lhasa, where he ordained and started the traditional studies and practices of a monk of the Gelugpa tradition. That's the school the Dalai Lama is part of. And with some help from relatives and kind benefactors, he had just enough to feed himself and keep going for the first few years, and at times going through very difficult periods of near starvation. There were so many thousands of monks out there, maybe with just a few villages nearby. Of course, they couldn't go for alms rounds. You just get the picture, like 10,000 monks going for alms rounds in a little village. So there's a whole different way than it was in Southeast Asia that they had to support themselves, themselves mostly through what they got sent, relatives, friends and benefactors. So it was difficult times for him. So when I just think about what it must have been at age 19 to leave home on a three-month journey on horse and foot to an absolutely unknown place. I mean, they must have been traveling a day here or a day there, but never to that kind of distance. And of course, unlike some of us who also traveled very far, was without travel checks and without cash and without return ticket in their pockets. 
and his willingness to study and practice even when starving gives me a sense of the renunciation and the enthusiasm he had for the Dharma right from the outset before he had even practiced so much. Ever since that time of his ordination and throughout his entire life he has been a perfect and exemplary monk adhering very closely to the Vinaya, the rules of the monks. Also in his teachings to us and to others, he has always put great emphasis on a, a clear and wholesome ethical conduct as being the absolutely necessary basis for any spiritual practice. He'd quote the Indian master Sakya Prabha, in this world, just as the root of a tree is vital, vital for its growth and sustenance, just so is moral integrity the foundation and the root of all the sublime dharmas. And Geshe certainly never once used his attainment or his status as an excuse or a pretext to do things differently from the standards he taught something which one also can observe sometimes. You know, teachers stating that they, where they are, they're far above those kind of ordinary uh, values of ethical conduct. In fact, he always was the one who gave the best living example. Remember when he came to Switzerland, they set him up in front of a TV set. And of course, they don't understand what's going on, but I know that Tibetans love it, and I've seen many lamas spend time, you know, looking at all those interesting <laughs> things happening. So he spent, I think he spent 15 minutes there to be polite, and then he went back to his room, and he never, ever watched any shows or TVs or anything anymore. It was at Sera Monastery, a monastery that had between 5,000 and 10,000 monks, I'm not sure about the exact number, where Geshe met his principal teacher and guru, Geshe Champa Kedup. And Geshe Rappen said that, although I had many teachers and gurus later on, this one had been the kindest and the true source of whatever good qualities I may have now interesting, isn't it, how they view it. It's the teacher who is the source of his good qualities. And Geshe Champa Ketup had not only been a great Dharma teacher, but he had also been a healer and someone who really cared for his many students like a mother. He said that he would even himself go and bathe and massage a very sick student occasionally when they really needed that kind of support. And even more touching was Keshe devotion to his teacher. And far from being gullible or romantic, his faith and devotion seems to have been really in a way the principal power that enabled him to progress very swiftly, which he did. 
and to go through incredible hardship with great enthusiasm. The study and discipline and practice Kesharatan went through was very demanding and tough. Again, it's really hard for us to even imagine to go through such a training with an enormous amount of teaching and studying done. All the major texts and commentaries were taught and studied thoroughly throughout years and years and years and years. And just to do justice to what he studied, I'll mention a few of the topics he studied in the 20 years of his monastic training, even though it might not mean that much to most of us. It's a concise and extensive analysis of the views of all the different Buddhist schools that was done with years of specializing on the study of Mariamika, the correct view on reality that's free of extremes, including most of the works of Nagarjuna and his commentators, Aryadela, Chandrakirti, and many others. They studied the mind and its functions, which nowadays we call Buddhist psychology. Studied them according to different schools, not just to one. Especially studied valid cognition, then the pro progressive path, different ways of attempting path enlightenment according to various vehicles, various yanas. Studied Abhidharma or Buddhist phenomena phenomenology. Can't say quite try. They studied monastic discipline, the Vinaya. In many of those texts they studied more or several years. In addition, there are many teachings given by resident lamas and by visiting lamas, and also many tantric initiations and extensive teachings on those subjects. And many of the texts that were studied first had to be memorized. It was quite normal that you knew now next year you studied this new text, you know, big books like this. They, start, they, they memorized them by heart, all of it. Geshe said that in those years he had developed what we call photographic memory. He knew by heart many of the important texts, some as long as, hundred, uh, as, as 1,500 pages, you know, those big Tibetan double-side folios. And I remember sometimes we'd ask him something and he'd close his eyes and read. Mm -hmm. And I tell you, it quotes. I mean, so, you know, I remember I tried to learn this one four line verse. <laughs> he once told us that to memorize both sides of one folio of one of these big books took him just about 15 minutes. So, Then at the same time, everything that was taught and studied and learned by heart was also debated. So, debates that took place in a very precise and 
well-defined form. The whole looks like a ritual, but a very rigid form of how all these topics were sort of taken apart and you had to hold one side, you had to hold it up or you had to try to defeat the other person who held it up so that one really knew what one was talking about and really could hold a position but also see where the weaknesses were of a position. It's a powerful method to get thoroughly acquainted with all these various topics of that one is studying. And it actually goes back to old India where great teachers and spiritual leaders would debate together against each other actually. And the one who lost would have to convert and together with his, you know, five thousand followers, you know, sort of take on the creed or the religion or the view of the one who would win in the debate. Very often, for years, the debates went on throughout the night, Geshe said. Those in the fourth class were required on alternate nights to remain all night in the college courtyard that was outside, debating without the break. I found this all-night debate very difficult, especially in winter, when the wind and the snow were biting cold. Remember, it's in Tibet. My hands would become hard from clapping, and would crack on both sides and then begin to bleed. This debating ground was roofless and lit by a few butter lamps, which always died out at around the middle of the night. But with all this, he says, he never lost faith. Sometimes we might feel that it's really tough when we get up early and sit until 10.30 or a bit later on the retreat. Tough, isn't it? <laughs> in some retreat centers in Burma, they wake up early at 3.15. You're supposed to go until 11. So. In addition to all that, Kesha Rapton, after some time at the monastery, became very poor, as I mentioned before. He couldn't get any money or food anymore at all. And he says, I couldn't afford sampa, that's the barley meal they mostly eat, the most common food in Tibet. Sometimes I could not even get the cheapest pea flour for five or six days in a row. When I was given a few coins, I would buy a fist-sized piece of fat, dissolve it in boiling water and drink it. Then I would feel so nauseous that any desire for food would vanish and leave me for a while. To fix his monk's robes, he will get pieces of cloth from small merchant stalls that sold at low prices the garments of the monks who had died. And since his shoes always had holes, he often walked barefoot on the cold stone floor. He says, for several years I was so ill that on returning from a debate, I sometimes could not climb up the stone steps leading to our house but had to crawl up on all fours. But I continued my studies, and by remembering the purpose of my coming to the monastery, which was to cultivate my mind, I did not become discouraged. That's so impressive for me. 
When I ever did become depressed about my poverty, I would read the biographies of Milarepa and of Jetson Kappa, and this would console me. For those who are not familiar with the Tibetan tradition, Milarepa is maybe the most famous Tibetan yogi of all times. He went through extraordinary hardships during his life and practice, but eventually became very realized. He lived in caves and mountains most of his life, mostly eating nettles. Like if you see him on Tonka, it's mostly slightly greenish. His skin has a green hue. <coughs> Actually, Geshe Rathen said he mostly lived on nettles in those years when he was very poor. Jetson Kappa was a great saint and scholar and the founder of the Gelukpa order. Just one detail of, out of his life. He uh, is said to have done 35 sets of 100,000 prostrations. You know, Tibetans do 100,000 of grand prostrations where you completely, <coughs> mostly purification practice, devotion practice, very concentrating, it's a very powerful thing, and you do that 100,000 times. He did 35 sets. <laughs> so, it's so amazing, people actually being able to have that kind of enthusiasm, that kind of devotion, that kind of totality. It was only after a number of years when Geshe himself started to have students and when he officially became the tutor of the incarnate Lama Gonsatoku that his material situation improved. So his commitment to practice was unshakable by outer circumstances. Rapton is actually not his monk name, but his family name, but I think it's very, gives a very good idea of how he was. It says something like very firm, very stable, like he really was like a mountain. How much inner peace we gain is very much related to renunciation. That doesn't necessarily mean we should be poor, because it's rather an inner attitude, an inner attitude of contentment, of non-grasping, of ease in how we relate to things, to beings, to ourselves, to thoughts and emotions. Similarly, our spiritual growth is also related to our aspiration, our enthusiasm and interest in truth. It doesn't necessarily mean that we have to leave our job and family to go off to meditate. And yet, I find it is good to see that even today there are a few people who do put the practice of the Dharma above all other concerns in life, in their life. People both in the East and West who go off to meditation centers, monasteries, and really put their whole life into this. There's a Thai nun right now 
staying at the barn, and I think Christopher said she'll be here the last day, a few days of the course. And uh, I think she's been a nun for 40 years. And people have been around her, they say, they've never seen her asking for something. And she's been very peaceful and quiet. Just not that sense of, you know, when I go in the kitchen, I look around and see what's there. <laughs> you know, maybe there's some avocado. <laughs> Just none of that. And yet not the sense of sort of, you know, being suppressed or something, but of being really peaceful. So I think that these people are truly worthy of our respect, of our admiration, and of our support. Sometimes I find that there's a funny kind of work ethics, especially in my country, Switzerland, but maybe in other Western countries too, where you have to make money in a way or style that is sanctioned by society. And intensive meditation, study and investigation of life and of truth, with some areas where there are exceptions, it just isn't one of this sanctioned way of living. Remember when I just had come back from years of being in India, meditating, studying the Dharma, my aunt wanted to know what I was doing in life. You know, what are you doing? So I told her what I was doing. She looked at me and she said, how much does one make doing that? <laughs> it's difficult to answer, clarify that one. <laughs> but sometimes some of us do have to make choices, dharma or career, practice or entertainment or other choices. And for some it's more radical, and for some less, and that's fine. But all of you who have ever decided to come to a retreat instead of going off to a vacation, which you all could have done instead. You know what I mean, and you know what some of the choices are. In terms of material wealth versus practice and realization, Nagarjuna says, if you have contentment, then even if you may be robbed of everything, consider yourself the richest of persons. But should you lack contentment, then no matter how rich you may be, you're just a servant or slave of your wealth. Milarepa, staying in mountain caves, living on nettles, said, For salt I use nettles, and for spice now I add some more nettles. <laughs> One of the things which really supports renunciation, contentment, and aspiration for freedom is the contemplation and the realization of impermanence, of the changing nature of all things. When Geshe Ratan had been at Sera Monastery for many years already, his guru went back to come in eastern Tibet, his homeland, 
And out of devotion, because he wanted to be with him, was so inspired by that person, at some point Geshe decided to return there too, to be with his teacher again. He walked on foot during three months through the wilderness, braving bandits and wild animals. This is the story where this tiger comes up in the night one. He said all he could do was sit there and take refuge and say a mantra and hope it would work. And the tiger was around for a while and then left. amazing hardship. He then stayed for a year or two at the monastery there. Actually his teacher said, what are you doing here? You know, you're supposed to study there. So why don't you go back? So he said, stay for a year and then go back. So he had to go back. And he did. But at his time at that monastery in his home country, he said he would have been free to go off for hikes, you know, trekking. Beautiful country. But he says he had no desire to go. Even when he looked at the mountains, he felt such a strong sense of transitoriness and renunciation after having contemplated the teachings over and over again for so long. So it happened through practice, not through some kind of suppression or something. He says, I mean, it's also quite some practice they did. As renunciation arose in my mind, my only desire was to remain in the monastery and continue my training. I had absolutely no desire to return to the householder's way of life. It was custom in our monastery that when a monk died, it fell to the monks between the ages of 15 and 30 who had studied in the universities of central Tibet to dispose of the corpse in the cemetery. The corpse was put in a bark basket and then carried on one's back to the cemetery. As ours was a large monastery, there were many monks in this age bracket, each of whom had in turn to carry the corpse some distance. When we got to the cemetery, the flesh, bones, skin and so forth had to be cut, ground up and fed to the vultures that gathered around. This was done as a gift for the birds. I took part in it many times. He says, and I can imagine, it greatly increased his sense of impermanence, (laughs) of renunciation, and also enthusiasm for practice. What I personally find fascinating is their approach to that. A couple of years ago, um, I went to listen to a, a Tibetan Lama in Amherst, uh, staying at IMS, and um, he was talking about the same thing, and he said, you know, and the vultures wait there, you know, and he had, he was, you know, laughing, and he says, it cuts your desires, you know, but then, you know, they wait for the brain to come, they know, and you think, oh, <laughs> so for them, it's not like, you know, really grim, and, you know, it locks them down, like, <laughs> I think it's quite so obviously it was very important for him to do a lot of meditation along with all the studies he says that for instance during all those years he never stopped doing the preliminary practices that the contemplations and meditations on impermanence and death on the preciousness of this human birth and situation 
reflecting about sometimes here, thinking on the suffering, on karma, on the power of our actions and their results, and so forth. He also never stopped doing his prostrations and mandala offerings, which are a preliminary practice of the Vajrayana. He says, I did meditate whenever possible from the time I began the studies on the perfections, which was maybe after a year or two of intensive studies at the monastery. And I would meditate whenever there was an opportunity. During some of the breaks of the interims, I went off to some caves behind the monastery to memorize texts and to contemplate and meditate on the teachings I had received. Also, during the debating sessions, there would be monks who would listen to, the, to those debating, and others would sit under the trees and practice non-conceptual meditation. And some actually would gain direct insight when their minds merged into emptiness, like water into water. And at some other point he said, when contemplating the great meaningfulness of having a human body, the difficulty of attaining it, and the ease with which it can be destroyed, I have had no time to stop meditating, not even while eating or answering the calls of nature. Later, after his escape to India, and after he had passed his final exams of a, what's called a number one class Geshe Larampa, which is the highest diploma, you could say, one can get in this tradition. Geshe Rapun, who by that time had become a spiritual assistant to His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, asked for permission to go into actual retreat for a number of years. The permission was granted, and he retreated up on the mountains above Dharamsala in India. At that time he already had many, many Tibetan students. A number of them were great yogis who were in retreat up, way up in the mountains in caves and little huts. And it's actually there where the first Westerners arrived and started asking him for teachings. When I got there in 1970, he was still in retreat in his little old hut up there. And he stayed there until 74, 75. He spent a lot of the time meditating on great compassion, on bodhicitta, which is the altruistic wish to become Buddha for the sake of all beings. In there, Tradition, the birth of a bodhisattva in one's heart, is the beginning of what they call the Mahayana path. He very often made a point that one wasn't Mahayana because one said so, or one wanted to be that, or one called himself that, or decided to be that. He said, you can wear maroon robes, and you can fix a sign here, or a little badge that says Mahayana. It doesn't mean anything. Yet, 
one might wear any kind of robe or no robe, when the, this compassionate attitude of bodhicitta genuinely has arisen, then one is on the Mahayana path, even when one never has heard of it. So it was always very important for him to point that this being a genuine inner motivation and attitude Of this time in retreat, he also said, When my mind became clear while investigating emptiness, there came an experience of clear emptiness. By removing a few gross obstacles to the realization of ultimate reality, and from this came great mental peace and joy. When this occurred, I would often think, if there is such peace and happiness when very gross obstacles are removed, what must be the peace and joy be like when one correctly realizes emptiness by dispelling the extremely subtle obstacles. And here's the English translation of a poem he wrote in those days. When I examined this old monk who previously seemed so existent, he turned out to be just like the tracks of a bird in the sky. The appearance of a bird just turns through the mind, but when one looks for its tracks, they are inexpressible. Emptiness is all there is. About his dwelling place up there, Marhat on the mountain, he said, At times when friends and relatives came to visit me, some wept on seeing what a poor small hut I had to live in. But despite the quality of the house, my mind has been filled with happiness. As my meditation has been going well, I have had no desire to go out or even to open the door or window. I have just wanted to stay in and meditate all day. In fact, after long periods of sitting in meditation, my legs have been so numb that I have had difficulty walking out to relieve myself. There have also been a few distractions due to sharing my dwelling with whole families of mice and rats, none of which are at least afraid of me. So, so that while I am sitting in meditation, they run all over my body. If you ever find it's difficult to sit, just remember. <laughs> I have found it rather distracting when they crawl on my head so I now wear a cap. There are also large monkeys that come and frequently run around on the roof. The slates are not well fastened, so they often slide down and the monkey's legs come through the ceiling. <laughs> In 1974, Keshrapen came to Switzerland and other places in Europe for the first time. In 75, he moved actually to Recon in Switzerland, and a year and a half later to a place called Tarpachurling, somewhere above Lake Geneva, a center for Dharma studies and practice, which he had founded. Spending a number of years with him also at that time in Switzerland, I often thought 
of the compassion and the care he had for us. To have left behind his blissful and liberating retreat practice to come to the West to teach us, you know, people who must have seen who I know seemed rather strange to him and rather incomprehensible, you know, in our ways of being and in our ways of understanding what he said and in the problems we had and and us, myself, not always being all too grateful. That also took time for me to realize, you know, who he was and where he came from and what he had left behind. To what he taught us was really like first grade. It was all the stuff he studied the first two years of his whole career. And that was really difficult for us, you know. And it's like, oh wow, you know. So, as a person, he was quite serious, but also extremely kind. Again, actually, much more than I realized in those days. Only today that I sometimes get the full impact of, full sense of what he did for us, being there. He was always available, any time. His teaching style was extremely lucid, extremely clear and easily graspable. In many examples, as soon as he came to the West, he found all these funny examples, you know, ways of seeing things, like they showed him a supermarket, and he'd always bring up things, you know, about the supermarket. They're so funny. So, he had a lot of humor. He taught Buddhist philosophy and logic, Buddhist psychology, the mind and its functions. He taught the path to enlightenment in all its facets. A lot of different types and styles of meditation and practice. Quite uncharacteristically for a Tibetan Lama, he didn't teach and talk much about Vajrayana Tantra, even though he held it in extremely high esteem. He was rather concerned about imparting a strong and clear foundation for the Dharma. And sometimes we thought, you know, come on, you know, tell us the real thing. And he talked about impermanence and the preciousness of the situation over and over. And suffering and karma and how our actions had results. And I said, yeah, sure, we know now. And he said, okay, and you must develop compassion. I said, sure, you know, all right. And he was insisting on that. And it took years and years for me to really start to appreciate what that did for me. He taught the so-called three principles of the path. Renunciation of samsara, letting go of what binds us, of what causes us to suffer. Taught great compassion of bodhicitta, the genuine motivation of active manifestation of compassion. And the wish to really go all the way, no matter how long this will take. So there's the possibility, the ability to manifest and work for the sake of all of life, all living beings. 
And again, what was so powerful with him is that was not just a good idea. You know, he was really practicing incredibly diligently and, and genuinely on working towards that motivation. And thirdly was the realization of the ultimate empty nature of all existent things, the insight and wisdom that liberates. This caused a number of other Dharma centers to come into existence in Germany, Austria, Italy. About ten books with his teachings were published in English, many also in German and other languages. And partly as the result of the hardships he had gone through as a young monk, Geshe's health wasn't very good most of the time. And on February 27th in 1986, at Harper in Switzerland, at the age of 66, he passed away. A few days before passing away, apparently he mentioned to Gonzalo Rinpoche, his main disciple and successor, that he didn't think one needed to make such a fuss about oneself dying. It was in February, it was winter, and he said when one just looked at the number of insects and all kinds of creatures that had to die when the cold of winter was coming, you know, it seemed rather quite natural. So there was great ease, and he passed away meditating. I'd like to close with a poem by Ryo Khan. What is the heart of this old monk like? A gentle wind beneath the vast sky. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.